I'll be reading from Hebrews, the first chapter, verses 1 and 2. I'm reading out of the King James Version. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in the last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom who he has appointed heirs of all things, by whom also he made the world. You may be sitting. Thank you for the reading tonight, and thank you for your presence, for the fine singing we've had. Lynn, thank you very much for leading us and directing us in that fashion, and, and for the good prayers that we've had. Thank you for the very sincere prayers, and we always solicit your prayers on our behalf as you remember us from time to time, and we remember you as well uh, in our prayers on a regular basis. And we're so happy that our prayers have been answered uh, with regard to so many, those who've been out and those who've been ill and are back with us, thank you for being with us, but we're also thankful to the Lord for the prayers and the way he's answered those prayers which we have made in your behalf. Uh, I'd like to study with you a little bit uh, this evening about a very important Bible principle and one that I'd like for us to consider carefully. I chose Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 for the beginning point of this lesson. As you were following along, thank you, Virgil, for reading that for us, that God does exist, that God has spoken, and that God has spoken through His Son. These are the three points that really come out of verse 1 and 2. God has revealed His will and spoken word. Uh, we have that word written down for us in propositional form. It's not the words that man views as being wise, but it is God's wise word. Uh, from his uh, from his revelation, First Corinthians chapter two and verse thirteen, these are words. It is written down for us in these particular in this particular fashion. Closely connected to that would be Paul's statement, First Corinthians chapter one and twenty one, as he talks about the revelation of God and how important that is, and how it came in the matter of words. He says in verse twenty, "Where is the one who is wise, or where is the scribe?" Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The preaching of the word of God. Now God's revealed truth. Paul would talk about this again. Hebrew, Romans chapter 11 comes up over and over again in the pages of the Bible. How God revealed his will now. He has revealed His will through words. We have the spoken word of Christ and the inspired apostles of Christ and New Testament apostles of Christ. Romans 11 and 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge and the wisdom of God. Oh, there's just no way to plummet the depths of God's great wisdom and God's great knowledge. That revelation has been given to us. That revelation sometimes is referred to as a pattern. In fact, the word pattern is used 16 times in 15 different verses. It comes up over and over again in the pages of the Bible, and it's one that we really need to understand uh, the insight as to what it is referring to. The word pattern, as I'm introducing the thought tonight, means teaching. 
God has given His inspired teaching to follow. And there is a pattern to follow. There is teaching that is to be followed. And God expects His teaching to be followed. And I would like to study a little bit about this very special word that's used for us over and over again. That word pattern. God has spoken. The word has been given. And it is a standard of teaching for us to follow, which is a principle that really needs to be understood tonight. And so I invite your attention to follow along with me as we study from the pages of God's holy and inspired word and look at this great subject of the Bible, Behold the Pattern. Now the Old Testament will help us understand what a pattern is because over and over again we see a pattern referred to. This special word that I've spoken about and will refer to uh, again is found for us in the life of Noah. You'll remember in the days of the flood and prior to it that man had become so wicked that God had decided he was going to destroy the world and cleanse it by this great flood. I really believe that the flood which we read of in the pages of the New Testament had more uh, consequences to it than we might think. Uh, It was a tremendous event in the days of the Old Testament and God saved those eight precious souls, Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives, in that ark. And he told him, he said, now I want you to build an ark. I'm going to destroy the world. And I want you to pitch it within and without with pitch. You're going to put one window in the ark. You're going to put one door in the ark. And you're going to take every two, two of every sort of animal and bring them into the ark. And I'm going to destroy the world. I want this ark to be 300 cubits in length and 50 cubits in breadth and 30 cubits in height. And I want you to make it out of gopher wood. And then we have this very interesting reference to the matter of the pattern in Genesis chapter 6 and 22. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And this point is referred to again in chapter 7 and verse 5. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. When it says he did what God commanded him, it is referring to the teaching that God gave him. God gave him specific instructions with regard to the ark, and Noah did all that God had commanded him. He followed those specific instructions to the letter, and it was well that he did. So we might think and surmise, what would have happened if Noah had thought to himself, well, I prefer red cedar rather than gopher wood, and so I believe I'll build the ark out of red cedar. Or perhaps Noah might have said, you know, Why can't everybody have a nice picture window right by their own birth? And so in that regard, everybody can see what's going on on the outside as we go on our our travel in the ark. Well, you and I both know what would have happened. He had not followed the teaching if he had done that. But Noah was very specific, and Noah followed the teaching. It's helping me understand a biblical principle. That biblical principle is about a pattern that is to be followed. Now, if you turn to the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 25, you're going to find the matter of the pattern coming up in the life of Moses. Of the children of Israel at the foot of Sinai, and certain consequential matters transpire. For example, they become a nation for the very first time at Sinai. Up to this point in time, they weren't really considered a nation. But they become a nation at the foot of Sinai. They've been freed from Egyptian bondage. God has led them along the way. They come to this great mountain. We're not sure exactly where Mount Sinai is, 
there is a rather large mountain range in that portion of, uh, of uh, the east in the Sinai Peninsula called the Sinai. Now, exactly what mountain the Bible's referring to in that mountain range, we can't be sure. Catherine's, uh, St. Catherine's uh, Monastery is built on the supposed site of the mountain of Sinai from the pages of the Old Testament. But as I said, we can't be sure where the exact spot would be, as it is a rather large mountain range. I've always wanted to go to St. Catherine's. It is uh, a monastery. One of the great uh, manuscripts of the Bible was found there, discovered there. One of these times when I have more time, I'd like to talk a little bit more about the monastery there and how the monks uh, uh, procured and safeguarded a, a great amount of manuscript evidence for the pages of our Bible, but I'll have to leave that for another time and another subject. Point of the matter being is, Moses is at Mount Sinai, the children of Israel at the foot of Sinai, and there God gives him the Ten Commandments. He also tells them to build the tabernacle and gives instruction for the building of the tabernacle. That's what's brought me to Exodus chapter 25. As you look at 25 and on into 26, you see the different furnishings. And the people of Israel contributed to the furnishing of the tabernacle. And they gave a great deal. They gave the linen cloths. They gave the gold. They gave the silver, the bronze, and all of the elements that were involved in the text. And the specific details of those elements are revealed and given for us. One thing comes up in this particular matter as it is described for us in, in the uh, passage. And that is in verse um, 8 of Exodus 25, 8 and 9, you have this particular statement by God concerning what Moses is to do. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. I think that's an interesting verse that helps us understand this principle, a biblical principle that God's teaching is to be followed, that God has laid his teaching down. It is a pattern to be followed. Now here Moses is given specific instructions on building the tabernacle. Now heretofore, there has not been a place for God to worship, to be worshipped in the Old Testament. But now we're going to build according to their instruction, God's instruction. They're going to build this portable, prefabricated, let's say, tent, which can be put up from place to place and taken down and carried with them. And when the pillar of cloud stops, they know that the camp is to stop, and there they will put up the tabernacle, and there they'll have the place to worship God. But one thing we remember about the tabernacle, God tells Moses, make sure you build it like I said, build it. Make sure you follow the instructions and follow the pattern as I've given it. So important is that that God gives that instruction again in this chapter, verse 40. Exodus 25 and 40 says, and see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mount. And that's our special word, pattern. Make sure you build it according to the pattern. Now this comes up for us in the writing of the book of Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 5, the Hebrew writer is discussing the high priesthood of Christ. And he's showing the superiority of the priesthood of Christ. And he brings up this point about Moses in the pages of the Old Testament and the pattern. And as you will notice in chapter, oh, it's about chapter 8, 
he comes to this particular point. Now, I love this section of the Bible because it's really showing the uh, greatness of Christ and the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament order. And that the New Testament is the fulfillment of that. The Old Testament, it's sort of an illustration. And the New Testament is its fulfillment, the type and the antitype. And in Hebrews 8 and verse 5, he says, They serve a copy, that is, this Old Testament tabernacle, and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. In other words, it's brought up in the New Testament. God told Moses to do it and do it right. God told Moses, this is how I want it done. And you're not at liberty, Moses, to change this and change that as you might see fit. There is a pattern for you to follow. And if you will be successful in this matter in pleasing me and the children of Israel being blessed, then you'll follow the pattern. You see, the Old Testament's helping me understand a principle here. It's found again in this matter of David and Solomon building the temple. Now, David wanted to build a temple, but he wasn't allowed to. He was a man of blood and a man of war. And he was a man who was involved in a long struggle, toilsome struggle to the throne of Israel. Even though he had been appointed by God, by his prophet Samuel, in his father Jesse's house, Still, it was a long struggle to the throne. And eventually, David is recognized by north and south as the king of Israel, and he combines the entire nation. He reigned at Hebron for seven and a half years, and then over the entire nation, he moves the capital to the city of Jerusalem, which he had captured from the Jebusites, the city of peace. And there becomes the city of David. And the temple is to be built. I hear David says, I live in a house of cedar. And what about the Lord? There is no house for the Lord. But God would not let him build the house. It was to be up to his son Solomon who would build the house. But yet plans were made and plans were given as to how this temple was to be built. And much of it resembles, resembles somewhat the Old Testament tabernacle. <clears throat> as you look at the plans that were given. But let's be studying First Corinth, Chronicles, as I mentioned it for you here, chapter 28. And I'll read just a verse or two to help us see that God had a special pattern for them to follow. It was not up to them to decide what to do. God had told them what He wanted. And the verses that I'd like to read tonight are First Chronicles chapter 28, verses 11 and 12. And we could look at other passages that refer to this. <clears throat> but I selected these because of their plainness and directness. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan of the vestibule of the temple and of its houses, its treasuries, its upper rooms, its inner chambers, and of the room for the mercy seat, and the plan of all that he had in mind for the courts of the house of the Lord, all the surrounding chambers, the treasuries of the house of God, the treasuries for dedicated gifts, and on and on the details go. But there was a pattern to be followed, and this pattern, of course, was given to him by God. Now, please keep in mind Romans chapter 15 and 4, that these things were written for our admonition, written for our learning, that we could learn from God and how God views these matters for us in the pages of the New Testament. God gave a pattern to Noah. 
to follow. And I think you and I could see rather obviously, if he didn't follow that pattern, it was going to mean disaster. And God gave a pattern for Moses and the tabernacle. And I think we can say without hesitation, if Moses didn't follow that pattern and build it the way God wanted it built, they were going to suffer for it. And God gave David and God gave Solomon a pattern to build that temple. And if they didn't build that temple according to the pattern which God had given, it was going to mean certain doom and destruction for the people of God, and they had to follow it. But before I talk about what the pattern is, I'd like to talk about what the pattern is not. What is not the pattern? And it's important for me to make this first point. The Old Testament is not the pattern. Now, I went to the Old Testament to help me understand the principle. Because the principle is illustrated there in the Old Testament in very figure, very specific, picturesque terms, very vivid terminology. Follow this pattern found for us in the New Testament. Moses was told by God to, fo- to follow the pattern. And it helped me understand the concept. But I want you to understand and know that the Old Testament is not the pattern that I'm to follow today, as many people would want to believe. Now... I really believe in the study of the Old Testament. It's amazing to me, and one of the things that I had to deal with on a regular basis where I used to preach, there were so many of the congregation, I don't know who taught them this, I don't know where it came from, but they had the idea that the study of the Old Testament was somehow a waste of time. And I kept hearing this. And I kept trying to deal with it. I kept trying to deal with it from the pulpit and Bible classes and with individual instruction. Uh, The idea, we live under the New Testament. And why are we studying the Old Testament? Uh, We live under the New Testament, so why would we spend any time studying the Old Testament? Uh, We're not going to be judged by the Old Testament. Why are we studying the Old Testament? And it was something that bothered me considerably because all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Peter chapter 3, 16 and 17. And is profitable for instruction, for correction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Verse 17. Have everything he needs at his disposal. And so I really can't just pick and choose what passages I want to study and what passages I want to ignore. I've got to take the whole counsel of God. And add to that the fact that if all I study is the New Testament, I'm really not going to understand it properly without an understanding of the Old Testament as well. Now, the Old Testament is not my pattern, but it helps me understand the New Testament, which is my pattern. And I'm never really going to understand this Old Testament Scripture unless I have a good understanding of the Old as well. How could I understand the book of Hebrews? Or how could I understand anything from the book of Revelation if I do not understand the Old Testament? And maybe that's why. Some people do not understand these great books of the Bible because they've never spent the time to study and read the pages of the Old Testament. As important as the Old Testament is, I have to understand the fact it is not my pattern tonight. I'm not going to be judged by the Old Testament. In the book of Galatians, and there are a number of Bible passages that stress this interesting and important point, but I'd like to reference Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19. Because in that particular verse, you're going to find a clear statement from Paul, we're not living under the Old Testament. Uh, We could have gone 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and any other great Bible passages that would teach us truth. But I chose this one in uh, Galatians chapter 3 and the passage that I have in mind. 
verse 19. Why then the law? That's the question. Why give consideration to the old law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could have given life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's skip on down now to verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now it's very clear as we've read, if we were to read more of this particular chapter that he's saying the law had its place and had its purpose. The law, though, was not one that could forgive sin. There was always a remembrance of sin under the old law. And if the old law were sufficient to forgive sin, there wouldn't have been any need for Christ to come. But that old law was good for the purpose which God had intended. It was a type of guardian to bring us to the New Testament, to bring us up to the point in time where we have the New Testament of Jesus Christ. And now we live under that. Another good passage that will help me remember that is Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. And I'd like to read this particular passage for us tonight as Paul deals with this point again. And he says in Colossians 2 and 14, By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The Old Testament is not the pattern. And a goodly portion of the New Testament is addressing that fact. A goodly portion of the New Testament is telling us we do not live under the Old Testament. Christianity is not some kind of Jewish upgrade. Christianity is not some kind of remodeled, modified Judaism. Christianity is a new covenant altogether. Jeremiah 31, 31 and 32. It is the religion of Jesus Christ. And we're not going to be judged by the Old Testament. All those feast days, those animal sacrifices, all those instruments of music and how they were used were used in the Old Testament are not brought over in the New Testament. It is not the standard. It's not the pattern. A lot of people have failed to realize <clears throat> this very important point. I don't live by the Old Testament tonight. I live by the New Testament. The last will and testament of Jesus Christ. And it's that I'm going to be judged by John 12 verse 48. Another thing or standard that is not the pattern. My feelings and my emotions. Now we need to spend some time on this. Because my feelings are not the standard. And my emotions are not the standard. It is not the pattern. We live in a day and a time in which emotionalism does reign supreme. In fact, many people want to make their emotional feelings the standard. And the way they do that is they'll say things like, well, it just feels right to me. But our emotions, our feelings, are not the standard. They're not the pattern that God has given. Emotionalism is certainly characteristic of our day and time. 
Emotionalism is a type of irrational approach. What God is doing is speaking to us through His words here in the Bible. And that takes an intellectual approach to understand, to learn, and read, and apply. These are intellectual type of disciplines. If I set that aside and go by my feelings, then in turn I have opted for an irrational approach to religion. But New Testament Christianity is not irrational. The atheist has long criticized us for being irrational. In many respects, many who claim to be Christians are irrational. They say, well, I just feel deep down in my heart that Jesus is the Son of God. And I feel deep down in my heart that God does exist. Well, a Muslim says the same thing. The Buddhist says the same thing. They say the same thing about their religion. But are they right or are they wrong? Christianity is rational. It is given to us in propositional truths whereby we look and we read, we understand, and we apply. That means we put it into action. We learn and we do. Intellectually, we learn what God wants, and then we do it and put it in our lives. It is not irrational. It is not based on emotion. Now, there is an emotional element to my faith. Uh, Certainly, my heart swells within me when I hear wonderful singing like we've heard tonight. There's an emotional element to this matter of Christianity that tells me, Oh, how I love Jesus. And when I hear songs like Amazing Grace or Tell Me the Old, Old Story, I love to tell the story. These songs fill my heart with emotion. And that's the way it should be. But feelings and emotions are not the standard. I've got to learn from the standard and put it into practice. I was told the story by an old friend of mine whom I dearly loved. His name was Jack. Jack was an old golfing buddy, and I admired him greatly, a faithful Christian man and uh, Aloha his wife, and uh, he was a bomber pilot in the Second World War. He was a pilot in the B-17s who made it through the war. And he and I would talk about that, and all I could do is listen to him talk because I didn't know anything about those things. And down in um, Palm Springs, they have a World War II airplane museum, and they brought in a B-17. He said, let's go down there and look at it. And when we did, he showed me everything from stem to stern on that plane. And there's a ramp in the B-17, just kind of a narrow passageway from the cockpit area back to the tail gunner's area. Quite frankly, I was too big to go down that ramp and go from cockpit to uh, tail gunner. And so was he. And he said, back in World War II... We'd run up and down that thing back and forth and back and forth. He says, you know, I remember in training, and he would tell me about the training, very rigorous, and as a cadet, they were told to trust their instruments and learn and follow their instrument and the, what they told them. Now, I don't know anything about these things. I have, I'm just listening to him tell this great story, and, 
And he says, as they were training, one of the cadets comes in and he's flying upside down. But he doesn't know it. I said, really? He says, yeah, he doesn't know it. And the instructor over the radio says, pull up, pull up. And when he pulls up, because he's flying upside down, he runs it right into the ground. And it destroyed the plane and the cadet. You've got to trust your instruments. That was his point. He is saying he felt like he was flying right. He felt as if everything was going just exactly right. He had the same feelings as if he were flying right side up. And when he's told to pull up, pull up, he pulls up like he's supposed to pull up, only he hits head first into the ground. Your emotions and your feelings cannot determine truth. It's not the standard. My heart is filled with emotion, but yet I know it is not the standard. Perhaps another good example might be found in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. In Genesis 37, you have the uh, reference there to the life of Joseph. And what a great individual he is uh, in the pages of the Bible. You'll remember about Joseph, how his brothers hated him. They were jealous of Joseph. And he was the dreamer, you know. Behold, the dreamer comes. Joseph had the dream. You know, we all were making, building, putting together our sheaves. And my sheaf stood up and yours bowed down and worshipped me. And he told that to his brothers, and they were very jealous of him. They said, you think we're going to bow down and worship you? And then he had another dream. He said, the sun, moon, and stars, sun and moon and 11 stars all bowed down and worshiped me. And his father rebuked him for having such a dream. He said, you think you're going, we're going to worship you as, and bow down and pay homage to you? And his brothers saw him coming in the distance, and they said, behold, the dreamer comes. Here he comes. Let's take him and kill him. Let's take him and kill him. Put him in a pit. Reuben... Judah, kind of instrumental in preserving Joseph's life. They saw Ishmaelite traders coming along the way, and they were headed down to Egypt, and they sold their brother 20 pieces of silver to Ishmaelite traders. And they thought, what are we going to tell our dad? So they took this coat of many colors. There's a lot of manuscript evidence talk about a coat of long sleeves rather than a coat of many colors. But however, we have it translated, a coat of many colors. And they took that coat of many colors and they killed a goat and they dipped it in the blood of the goat and they took it to their father and said, do you recognize this coat? Their father looked at that coat and said, yeah, it's my son's coat. Something's happened to him. Something terrible has happened. A wild beast must have destroyed my son. And he lived under that false notion for years. The truth of the matter was Joseph wasn't dead. The truth of the matter was he'd gone down to Egypt as a slave. And as you read on down through the book of Genesis, you're going to read more about what happened to him while he was in Egypt. And here God is preserving the family. He's bringing all these things about for their benefit. But he lived under the false impression that his son had died. And he had the same feelings as if he had been dead. He had the same emotions as if his son were dead. But his son wasn't dead. You see, emotions and feelings cannot be the pattern. Can't be. We all have emotions. But it can't be the pattern. 
Tell you something else can't be the pattern. The majority. There's always a tendency in a free society like ours, such as a republic, whereby we can get together and by popular vote decide what's right. And we'll cast enough ballots and we can see what's right from what's wrong. And we'll cast the ballot here and we'll decide. But you can't cast ballots and decide what's right and what's wrong. The majority could vote for what's wrong. During the days of the Nazis, they took over the Reichstag in 1932. And Adolf Hitler with his Nazis took over that. And everybody now they did it by popular vote. And now they're saying we ought to exterminate all the Jews. We ought to get rid of all of the gypsies. We ought to get rid of all of these different classes, lower classes of people. And they went about the process of exterminating those people. And one of the arguments used at the Nuremberg trials at the end of the Second World War was that these Nazis who were now being set up for war crimes and war crime tribunal were saying, we all voted for it. We all were doing what we were told to do. This is what our government told us to do. And that's why we did it. But the majority can't always be right. Sometimes the majority's wrong. And I'm afraid more times than not it's wrong. Simply because the majority said this is the right thing to do does not make it right. You see, the majority and the thinking of the majority doesn't make it right. Sometimes this comes up in the church. Look how big we are. We've got to be doing something right. Because we're big. Look how many people we've got. Oh, we must be doing it right because look at all the people that we've got. Sometimes it comes up in the church. This guy must really be right because look at all the different places he goes to preach and look at all the different places he goes to teach and look at all the people that buy his book. He must be right. The majority doesn't decide what is right. The majority can't be the pattern. The majority can be misled. The majority of people in Noah's day had the wrong idea and only eight righteous souls were saved by that water. The rest perished because they followed the majority. The majority cannot be the pattern. The New Testament is. The New Testament is the pattern, and I picked out three verses in discussion of this matter that I'd like for you to remember. In Colossians chapter 3, the passage that I have in mind, verse 17, talks about the authoritative nature of the New Testament. In that particular passage, the Bible says, And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Now, the authority found in that passage is in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, when you read that in Colossians chapter 3, you're looking at the authority for our lives. Now, he's very specific in a way. Whatever you do, you do in word, whatever you say, whatever you do in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, by the authority of Christ. What we believe, what we do, what we practice, how we live, is to be done by the authority of Christ. That's the pattern. 
And here's our duty, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's always our great privilege and pleasure to thank God for His many, many blessings. Another passage, and I hurry along, and I hope that you'll mark this passage, is 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Now let me explain a little bit what's going on in this chapter. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, he's trying to admonish them about the role of an apostle. Now we got problems at Corinth, okay? We got people who are trying to, I'm, I'm for this guy over here at, and I'm not for that guy over there. And they're kind of dividing the church up with regard to these different preachers and that kind of thing. And, church, and division was uh, growing in the church. And we see a lot of that in, in chapter 3 and a lot of 1 Corinthians 1 and 10 uh, is Paul's advice on straightening out that particular problem. And in the heart of that, he has this great verse, verse 6, and I'd like to explain it. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers. Now, what he means by that is I didn't put your names in there. I used myself as an illustration. I used Apollos as an illustration. And I saved yourself the embarrassment of me putting your name in that particular place because you're going in the wrong direction here that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. You need to learn something here. Don't go beyond what God has revealed, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. As primary consideration is foiling church division. But he says in this particular passage, here's a principle you need to learn. It's a principle which says, don't go beyond what is written. Follow the pattern. David had to. Moses had to. Oh, Noah did. And you and I have to, to be pleasing in the sight of God. This is desperately needed in our day and time. An issue comes up in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which is alive and well today, even in the church of the Lord. And here he's giving them some instruction because they were having problems about the order of the worship service. And he tells them in this particular matter that the women are not to have a leadership role or a leadership position in the worship of the church. And he discusses that matter. You and I have discussed it as well. And he comes to verse 37 and uh, verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? Now that verse 36 there, he's being pretty strict with them there. And maybe being a little ironic there. Do you think you're the ones who receive the revelation from God? No, I'm the apostle of Christ. God has given me the revelation. And then he says in 37, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. This is where the commands are to be found. It's the New Testament. That's the pattern. The Old Testament, wonderful document. I love studying it. It helps me understand the New Testament, and without it, I'd be lost. I, I just wouldn't understand, lost in the sense of I just wouldn't know what's going on in the New Testament. But it's not the standard. The New Testament is. This word standard comes up in Romans chapter 6, and I'd like to close with that verse. And it's an amazing passage in Romans 6, as he says in verse 7, 
But thanks to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. You became free from sin when you obeyed the pattern. You became free from sin when you followed the teaching. When you obeyed the teaching, you became free from sin. When you obeyed the teaching of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ, and the proper response that you are to have to that, by being baptized into the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. When you did that, when you obeyed that standard, when you obeyed that pattern, you received forgiveness of sin. Romans chapter 6, 17 and 18. Brethren, behold the pattern. Follow it. Learn it. Study it. Do it. And be pleasing in the sight of God. God has given us the pattern for salvation. Of which I have made allusion to already. By repenting of sin and confessing of faith. Baptism into Christ for the remission of sins. Once added to the church of the Lord. Provision made for those who fall away from the word of God. They can repent of their sins and pray and God will forgive them. And I urge you to do that tonight. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?